Good morning, church. My name is Jennifer Colby, and I'm one of the directors here at Zion. Last week, I actually joined church from online, and it just reminded me of how important that community is, that somehow, even though we're all in here and there, wherever they're at, uh, that we're still one big family. So if you're joining us online, hi, hello, leave us a comment. We want to just know that you're here joining us. The reason why I joined online last week is that my entire family was out sick with COVID. So yes, this means I wrote this message while I myself was also sick with COVID. Today's message is brought to you from the comfort of my couch by the sheer power of the Holy Spirit, because otherwise, how in the world? Uh, This is the first time I'm wearing shoes in a while, and I did take several naps, so it wasn't all bad. But the reason why I still wanted to teach to you today was two things. One, it is such a privilege and an honor to teach you all. Thank you for letting me speak into your lives. And two, Pastor Jason was uh, looking for a break and needed some mental rest. Do you know how exhausting it is to study, write, try to discern God's will, and get up here each and every week to teach the gospel? It is honestly no easy task. And actually, did you know that October is Pastor Appreciation Month? So can we just give a cheer for the pastors here at Zion and for how God is using them? Jason, I see you back in the corner. I just want to thank you for your leadership and for getting up each and every week and just preaching the gospel so faithfully. And also for modeling rest for us. Well done. Uh, I was initially supposed to teach on Galatians 3 today, and Galatians 3 starts off with the words, you foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? So like, yikes, good luck to whoever teaches that week. Thankfully, thankfully today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. If you have your passport with you, open it up until you find the chapter 2 verses. You can take notes there. Um, Or if you have your Bible, open it up to about two-thirds of the way to the right. You're going to go past the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Go past... Acts and Romans, in the uh, Corinthians books, and you'll get to Galatians. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. Before we get into it, let me give you a quick background as to what's going on here in our text. What we see as this book in the Bible is actually a letter written to the church in Galatia. Uh, Paul had been there previously preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and lives were being transformed. People who had previously worshipped pagan gods, false gods, were choosing instead to follow Jesus. They were hearing about God's love for them and how his death and resurrection offered the forgiveness of sins and how all of these were gifts, unearned, undeserved, free gifts, acts of God's grace. And it was compelling. It was compelling them to change course and go in a different direction. And it was all good. But then the Jewish leaders, some of whom had converted to Christianity themselves, began telling these people that a part of being God's family meant that you also had to follow Jewish customs, customs that included things like circumcision. Now, this was actually really important to the Jewish people because God had previously given Abraham circumcision as a sign of the covenant that he would be their God and they would be his people. Circumcision was a sign of belonging. It was, a, it was membership into God's family. And, and actually, for these reasons, the Galatians were eager to be circumcised. They wanted to be identified as God's people, to be known as God's people. They wanted an outward sign of an inward change. But good intended as that was, it missed the point of the gospel. And this caused the Galatian church to deviate from believing the truth and took them into a completely different direction. 
the result was not just that new people didn't want to follow Jesus. It's that now they were preaching a whole different religion. It was not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was some skewed alternate version where people had some control over their own salvation, where it was Jesus plus myself instead of Jesus only. And this was not a small deal. This is a major issue. Paul saw the threat not only to the core of the gospel message, but also to the unity of the church. And when these two threats combine, it's a threat to the family, to the belonging of God's sons and daughters. The Gentiles were at risk for being excluded from God's family. And since belonging is a core value of our church, we're going to keep talking about it. The theme of belonging is is strewn all throughout the book of Galatians, and different areas of belonging are at play here as Paul continues to make his case that it's Jesus plus nothing else. Galatians 2, verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to make sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So Paul is going to Jerusalem to privately meet up with esteemed Jewish leaders there. And they're going to talk about this whole circumcision thing, this whole Jesus plus Jewish customs thing. And Paul doesn't actually think he's wrong. He, he does, but he does understand that if the Jewish leaders disagree with him, that the work he had been doing all along will be futile, that it would be fruitless. And so Paul takes Barnabas and Titus with him. Barnabas' name literally means son of encouragement. He's an encourager by nature. He had a reconciling demeanor about him. He was dependent on the Holy Spirit. He was a mentor to Paul and a beloved friend. And and Barnabas actually came from a Jewish background, and he was very close to the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem. Titus, on the other hand, did not come from a Jewish background. He was a convert from paganism. He was not circumcised, and I feel that it is very awkward that we know this intimate detail about him. He was very dear to Paul. In fact, Paul calls him my true son in the faith. Titus is the perfect example of an uncircumcised convert. And these are the kind of friends you want in your corner, the kind of people you want standing shoulder to shoulder with you when things are hard. These are the people whose very lives are reminders of what the gospel is really about. And here's the thing. The whole reason we've been imploring you and encouraging you to get connected into community isn't because we think you need more friends, as good as that is. It's not because church trends tell us that the one thing that the church can offer that it's hard to find elsewhere is true community, although I believe that's to be true. The reason we want you connected into community is because when life gets hard, when unity is threatened, when the truth of the gospel gets distorted in your own mind, let alone in the church, it's that's when you need community in your life to stand with you. You can't build it at moments when you need it the most. You need to have already done the relational work beforehand. You need people who already know you, whom you trust, who can preach the gospel to you, whose lives are actual living reminders of the work of the gospel. That's why this is so important to us, because you weren't created to do this life alone. We have a small group in our church, and they meet on Tuesdays. I have heard them say, we don't live Sunday to Sunday. We live Tuesday to Tuesday. As in, as good as this large gathering is on Sunday, the church that sustains us week by week is our small group. And beyond that, a lot of life happens even in the course of just a couple of weeks. 
a marriage, divorce, a diagnosis, a new job, a loss of a job, a birth of a child, a death of a loved one. These are major life updates, and a lot happens in even a short amount of time. And we need the gospel in all of it. We need other people to preach the gospel to us because it is so difficult to preach the gospel to ourselves. Someone else, someone who has equity in my life, who knows who I am, who knows what I am walking through, that's a friend that can speak into my life. And that friend, that's the exact friend I'm going to rely upon to straighten me out when I've made up my own version of what salvation is. See, it's community that when we're making our own version of salvation, when things are getting really mixed up in our heads, it's community who reminds us of the truth. And I don't know about you, but I need someone to tell me it's not Jesus plus Jennifer. It's Jesus, period. True community comes back to us and reminds us that there's grace, forgiveness, that there's goodness, that God is still faithful, that he is still for you. And we need that. Because it is really hard to be reminded on our own sometimes. And so when Paul says, I took Barnabas and Titus with me, he's saying, this is my arsenal. They're the evidence of everything I believe. I need them. Because when I can't remember what Jesus says about me or when I can't remember what is true about the gospel, they'll remind me. And better yet, true community is we'll all remind each other of the gospel. Because here's the thing. Sometimes you're Paul and you need the reminder. And sometimes you're like Barnabas and Titus, and you are the reminder. In community, we play both parts. And that's why we care so much that you're living in community, because who is going to remind you of the gospel if you're not? Continuing on in verse 3 here. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Again, I'm so sorry we know that about you, Titus even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The freedom that Paul is talking about here is twofold. One, there's freedom in the fact that our salvation doesn't depend upon us. Let me say that again. It's actually freeing that our salvation doesn't depend on us. That freedom itself is a gift. And secondly, because we have received the grace of God, we are actually free from the law itself, from the rules of the Old Testament. And that this freedom doesn't give us permission to sin. It just means that when we do, because we will, there's grace. And it's actually freedom to obey God as a response to God's love. It's slavery when we obey just because we feel obligated to or because we worry about the punishment. So we do our best not to sin, not because it'll save us or to avoid hell or anything like that. We don't obey God because we have to. We obey because we want to, because we're grateful that he loves us and wants good things for us. And there's freedom in that. And it's this freedom that the false believers are coming to spy upon, that they're coming to see and check out. In some other Bible translations, false believers is translated as false brothers. And that word brother strikes differently even though they might be believing a different thing or maybe even a wrong thing, they're still a brother. People who who disagree belong in our church. People who maybe were once brothers in Christ and then left the faith, they belong too. Even the people who are causing some dissension, they have a place in our church. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to have healthy boundaries. We do. We need to be wise with that. Division, if it's threatening the unity of the church, needs to be dealt with. 
But you know how the last couple of weeks Pastor Jason has reminded us that we can romanticize people in the Bible, that we can think too highly of them? Well, I believe the opposite is also true. We can demonize people and think they're worse than they might be. Now, to be sure, I do think that if we see dis, uh, division or dissension amongst God's people, that the spiritual source of that is from our enemy, Satan. But I'm not sure it means that the people themselves have evil intentions. They probably aren't themselves the enemy. Let's take the false brothers that Paul's talking about. Were they actually trying to make people slaves to the law? Was it their intent to cause damage? Is it possible that they had good intentions? I mean, maybe they just wanted their new brothers to receive the Old Testament blessing that came with circumcision. And if that's the case, then the slavery that Paul is talking about is just a byproduct of a well-intended but misdirected brother. Here's the thing. Having people who are on the outside of our church looking in, checking things out, spying on this freedom we have in Christ, that's wonderful. I want them to spy. I want them to know all about the freedom we have in Christ. Because even if the enemy intends their spying for evil, we serve a God who can turn it around for good. The danger for us then is when their beliefs, which don't quite yet align with God's word, enslaves us in our own minds. When we go back to thinking it's Jesus plus anything else or Jesus plus anything I can do, that's when it's dangerous. The danger is when their thinking causes us to be captives in our own minds, where we somehow go back to thinking that we have some control in our own salvation. That's the danger. See, the freedom we have in Christ is the freedom of a salvation system that doesn't depend on us. But the moment we think it is, or that it does, we're enslaved again. People who don't think like us or act like us are not only welcomed here, they belong here. They might infiltrate, to use that word, and change our thinking on a variety of topics. And actually, that can be a good thing, a great thing, until it conflicts with the word of God. And that's where we have to draw the line or risk becoming enslaved. Now, to be sure, there are a lot of gray areas in the Bible. There's some wiggle room on some things. There are some things we can agree to disagree on. But these are minor things. For example, a woman teacher. If you had asked me two years ago, I would have told you that I didn't think women uh, should teach in this sort of capacity based upon my understanding of Scripture at the time. Yet after studying Scripture from a different perspective and, and talking with people that I trust, here I am. But in the end, regardless of whatever side of the aisle you're on on that, it's a minor issue. Salvation, though, isn't one of those things. It is a major issue, and it's one that the Bible is very clear about. There's one way and only one way to heaven, and that way is through Christ Jesus. For Paul, he was battling a false thinking that salvation was Jesus plus Jewish customs, things like circumcision. And, you know, we don't really have that problem today. Nobody's going around forcing us to be circumcised. We would have them arrested. That's not a thing today. But we definitely do have a false thinking that Jesus plus good works equals salvation, that Jesus plus be a good person gets someone to heaven. And as this false thinking has morphed over time, it's gone from Jesus plus be a good person to just be a good person. That being a good person alone is sufficient for salvation. And that Jesus part gets left out altogether. And so here we have a situation where we're saying, Jesus is the only requirement for salvation for me, but for you, you don't even need Jesus. And friends, how can that be true? Either it's true that Jesus is the one and only way for salvation, or it's not. It can't be true for us and not true for other people. That isn't how truth works. Truth is always true. 
And furthermore, if we find freedom in believing that we can't earn our salvation, how cruel of us to enslave other people by telling them, well, if you're only good enough. It's an unbearable burden to tell people that their salvation is contingent upon them. And this is the exact reason why Paul is meeting with the Jerusalem leaders. In essence, he's saying to them, guys, either it's true that Jesus is the only way or it's not. It really can't be both. You don't you yourselves aren't trying to earn salvation, so why are you trying to make other people? Being a good person as the equation for salvation is just as wrong and harmful as saying Jesus plus anything else equals salvation. And frankly, I understand why this is so hard. Have you ever been at someone's funeral who never professed Christ as Lord? It's devastating. It's devastating to consider they're not in heaven. You want to assume good things for them. And it's really hard to compare the murderer who has professed Jesus as Lord with the regular old Joel do-gooder who didn't. How can the murderer have salvation and not the one who's just a good person? It's complex. And I sat with the Lord on this topic for a while asking him, is there, is there a word for this? What's this connected to? Where does this come from? How do we break this thinking in our church specifically? And I haven't been given an answer. So here's what I'm going to say instead. Go see for yourself. Open up God's word and see if you can find anything that states being a good person alone gets someone to heaven. And if you find something, talk with Pastor Jason because it's Pastor Appreciation Month, and I'm sure he would appreciate that conversation. But all joking aside, we would love to walk alongside with you as you process what all that means. I don't know, friends. I, I don't know. But I do know there's a connection between Paul's meeting with the Jerusalem leaders all those years ago and with us today. People can struggle with this and still belong in Zion. You can struggle with this and still belong here. People with doubts and questions belong in our small groups and Bible studies. We need to let them spy on the freedom we have in Christ. We need to let them ask their questions and voice their doubts. It's just, at the end of the day, when it comes to matters of salvation, we can't ourselves become enslaved again by thinking that it's anything other than Jesus alone. And as you process these sorts of things, go to your Barnabases and go to your Tituses and let them remind you of what's true. I'm picking up in verse 6 now. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, <clears throat> they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Peter is telling the Galatians that the leaders in Jerusalem didn't change his mind about circumcision or about salvation. He already knew the truth. In fact, the Jewish leaders actually agreed with him. And Paul calls them those who were held in high esteem. And he basically adds, they're no better than anyone else. It is an absolute tremendous threat to our belonging and to our missional living that is the call to love our neighbors as ourselves and go make disciples. It is a threat when we create a hierarchy of importance among believers, when there's spiritual elitism. And here are the kinds of comparisons I'm talking about. He has a stronger faith than me. She's a way better prayer than I am. She is so called to missions, I could never do that. He has so much Bible knowledge, I never will. Or how about this one? She's on church staff, so she's much better suited to do this ministry than I am. Can you see how we diminish our own belonging by saying these things, by thinking these things, that we don't cut it, that we don't actually fit in here? 
And by the way, spiritual elitism can go the other way too. It's things like, I have more knowledge than you, so I could teach this class better. Or I'm the person on staff, so I'm better than y'all. No. Consider the damage we cause in building community and trying to make people feel welcome when, they, when we instead make them feel like they don't cut it. So, so many people feel shame about being a Christian. It is heartbreaking. And it's because of this spiritual hierarchy that we create. We create it. Paul says, God doesn't show favoritism. But so often we act, act like he does. How we evaluate people is not how God evaluates people. And friends, I want us to live in such a way that when people are around us, they are invited into spiritual growth instead of feeling spiritually condemned that they're not further along. Part of our belonging at our church should mean come as you are. Come regardless of how much you know or don't know about faith. I think some of you may need to hear this. That small faith that you worry isn't big enough, God can use it. Those few Bible verses that you know but you're actually embarrassed by because you think you should know more, that is still God's word on your heart. He will absolutely use it. Those gifts you have, he gave them to you. He knows exactly what to do with them. God's greatness does not depend upon you. We're all learning. We all have the opportunity to be a part of God's purposes. And those common threads alone give us belonging with one another. We truly belong to each other when we acknowledge and understand and celebrate that people are in different stages of faith, that they have different gifts, and they have different callings, and that all of that can be used for the glory of God. So yes, spiritual elitism is a threat to our belonging, but there's an even more dangerous side to it. Spiritual elitism can stunt our spiritual growth and impair our missional living. What I mean is this. Our own feelings of inadequacy or our own feelings that someone else is better suited than we are can actually prevent us from doing the things that God has called us to do. If you're worried that you don't pray out loud well enough, well, then you might just not. If you don't think you have enough Bible knowledge, then you might not even share what you do know. If you see how obvious it is that someone else is called to the mission field, you might totally miss that you are too. Spiritual growth leads to missional living. And Paul continues on verse 8. He says, For God, who is at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. You see, it was God who was at work in Peter to preach to the Jews, and it was God who was at work in Paul to preach to the non-Jews. It was God in both. It is his work. And it's no different for us. We can offer whatever little we have, believing that it is God who is working and that it is God who is responsible for the results. The fact that we have the same God working in each of us to accomplish his will further reminds us that we belong to something together. We belong to the same mission of loving our neighbors, loving our city. Even people who are not Christians yet can get around that idea. Living on mission for Christ is a direct result of how we understand the gospel. Loving our neighbors and making disciples is how we act like a family. I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to finish this thing. Paul continues on in verse 9. James, Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. 
Paul and Barnabas shook hands with the Jewish leaders. That's what it means when it says they gave the right hand of fellowship. They shook hands, and they verbally, theologically, and publicly agreed that salvation is found in Christ Jesus alone. Part of living in community is that when we're wrong, we repent and turn around. And so they all agreed that it was good that God was working in each of them individually, and that while they were called to different people, they were called for the same reason. Shaking hands was a symbol of partnership. They had an equal part in sharing the gospel and in loving their neighbors. Remembering the mission was just a further opportunity to unite them. This handshake firmly established they belonged as one family. I want to summarize the entire message this morning with a quote from N.T. Wright. He says, Either it was true that the death and resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit defeated the powers of the old age, rescued people from it, and transformed them from within, or it wasn't. And if it was true, the rescued people would form a single group, the one family. Deny that, and you would deny the central gospel message. That was the point of the Galatians. Then it is arguably the community-forming point now. If we deny that the salvation message is Christ alone, then we also deny that we belong together. Our belonging is dependent upon Christ on the cross. So what do we do with all this? Number one, salvation is found in Jesus alone. It is not found in Jesus plus Jewish customs, just like it's not found in Jesus plus being a good person, just like it's not found in just be a good person. It is Christ alone. And if you don't know this as truth, either for yourself or for other people, can I encourage you to seek out God's work, God's word, and wise counsel and really work through this? It is a major issue. Number two, because of what Christ did for us, we have a place to belong. And part of that belonging means that you need people in your life who you can trust to encourage you in the faith. People's, li- people's whose lives who's are actual living reminders of the gospel. People who, when spiritual elitism or shame or whatever else prevents you from spiritually growing, remind you that it's God's work in you. Who remind you that he uses us, each of us differently to accomplish his will. And if you don't have that, can I encourage you to reach out and start doing the relational work now? And number three, we all have an equal part in sharing the gospel message and loving our city. We all belong to the same mission. And that mission belongs, it best works when we all do it and we all participate in it. On December 4th for Christmas by the Lake, we're inviting our entire city into our house, into this house. And it's going to take all of us to welcome them and love them. So I encourage you this week, get online and sign up to serve and help us love this city. And when division threatens to divide us, we'll remember the truth of what Christ has done for us. We'll choose to major only on the issues that need to be majored on. We'll remember that we're all the same in Christ, that we're all called by him, that we all belong to him, and that we're all part of the same mission. Let's pray. Father God, it is Christ alone. Thank you, Jesus, that it is not dependent upon me and it's not dependent upon anyone else in this room for their salvation because you did it. It was your work, Lord. And Father, I just pray if there's someone in this room who doesn't know that is true, would you, would you open their heart and speak to them? Would you open your words and your Bible to remind them to, to see what it says is true, Father? And God, thank you that we belong. Thank you that your work gives us a place to belong. And Lord, if there are people in this room who don't know that they belong or how to belong, Father, would you surround them with your children to love them and to, to encourage them up in the faith? 
Lord, I thank you that I don't have to remind myself of the gospel when you've given me brothers and sisters who will do it for me. Thank you, Lord, that it doesn't depend upon me. Thank you, Lord, that you will give us, that you will use whatever little offerings and whatever little skills we have. You will use that one Bible verse. You will, you will just use the one thing you've taught us to reach other people. Thank you that the little things that we can offer are great things in your kingdom. Father, help us to love Clear Lake and beyond. God, we want them to know you. We want them to see the freedom you offer. And so, Father, I pray that you would go before us and prepare the way. Lord, we love you, and we offer you this next time as worship to you. Thank you that it is you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.